Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, Mo, uh, good afternoon. Here I am in the journal offices in Needham, Massachusetts, where I come every three to four weeks and meet with the copy editing staff, and and we get to see each other face to face, which is is nice. Uh, Delta Airlines does a nice job with safety, etc. But normally, you know, we're taping these things in the morning. But my coffee cup is empty here. So, uh, but, but is, is it wrong? To, is it wrong to say I've got you know I've got some Perrier in this? It's okay, right? It's 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 still well, the nice I, cup. I want to use I've the got, cup. Well, I have to ask the question: Is there a wedge of lemon or lime in it? Oh no, no, none, none. It's just it's just basically just pure pure springs. It's just nice. <laughs> it's good stuff. Yeah, well, I'm Best set. You can buy. I, had, I, I had like three cups of coffee on the airplane, so yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm all set. So, uh, yeah, we haven't uh, taped for a few weeks, so it's a good time to get back into our old routine. What we had originally envisioned for Ortho Joe is to look at stuff that we'd recently published on our respective journals and just chat about something that uh, caught our eye uh, and we think is important for the listening audience. So here, here I am with the February 16th uh, issue of JVJS. And, you know, something we don't, uh, particularly you and I who are primarily interested in clinically anyway, in trauma, we're interested in all aspects of orthopedics, but we don't often talk about tumor surgery. And uh, it is... Uh, not an incredibly large volume of patients that orthopedic surgeons are involved with, but I pick an article where it is, uh, I think, the most common situation where orthopedic surgeons are involved, and that's with uh, either complete or impending long bone fractures. And what this uh, study was is a, a, a matched cohort study using propensity uh, perspective, which I'm gonna ask you to talk about in a minute, um, but uh, it is a matched cohort study from a database of over a thousand patients who were treated with IM nails for either a complete fracture of a long bone uh, or an impending fracture. And they matched uh, in this propensity design across several important characteristics, age, sex, BMI, comorbidities, primary tumor type, location of the procedure, other bone metastasis, et cetera, et cetera. Very extensive matching criteria. And they, they ended up with uh, 270 very precisely matched patients and, and looked at their uh, short-term outcomes, uh, meaning the first 90 days and the one-year one mortality outcomes. And the findings were that there's no real difference in the short-term outcomes, but at one, one year, more, mortality rates for the patients treated with impending fractures were was much better. So uh, the authors state that for this particular clinical question, that a randomized trial design, which you and I have been advocates of for many, many decades, uh, is, is inappropriate. And first of all, you, you probably would have a great deal of difficulty uh, recruiting patients into it. So how does this propensity matching really elevate the value of these findings in, in, in your experience? Right. 
So maybe the, the way I look at this very broadly, but I'll, I'll, I'll start off with the proviso, Mark, that I'm not an expert. So there'll be statisticians who are listening who are going to cringe. But I think for most of us, I think I'll, I'll get the gist of it right. So let's go back, I think, to why we even randomize. You and I are such strong advocates yeah. of randomization. And I always say that, that the biggest challenge we have when we're trying to assign a treatment to two groups is trying to get those two groups to be as, quote, prognostically equal as possible. So when you kind of do a flip of a coin or a randomization, you know, let's say you recruit a thousand patients, you can have a general sense of security if randomization worked, that you've got two groups that are balanced for all the different types of variables that could be potentially important. And even this is where it's really critical, randomization balances for the stuff we think is important, but also for all the stuff we didn't realize was important. So it's all the, uh, the things that we just don't know could be important. It balances that. So when we see a difference, we say, well, it's gotta be because of the intervention because that's the only thing that we controlled. So what do you do in a situation where there's a cohort study? The same goal, right? Like we're, we, we are trying in principally to say, how do we get two groups to be as similar as possible without this proviso or randomization? So you had said in the study that they looked at a number of variables. So in this particular case, and that's why it often gets downgraded from a level one to a level two is because without randomization, we are now using everything we know about that problem and that patient population about the things that could affect outcome and making you know, the best, really, it really is an educated guess you know, based on prior evidence and prior insight. So I don't know how many variables in the paper they said that they tried to balance for, but they identified probably a handful, maybe 10 or less, probably, probably less than that, but yeah, some they number- Yeah, more, more than 15. Oh, more uh, than 15, okay, so they had a, okay. So the, so they, they identified a bunch of variables. And really what they're doing using this propensity scoring tool is basically being able to say, based on, based on the individual, so the unit of randomization, in this case is, is the patient, you know, based on that person's background for all those 15 variables, how do how do they allocate that person to A versus B to minimize the overall difference between groups? Fancy way of basically saying we're using mathematics and regression to basically come up with a way through propensity scores to try to make these two groups as similar as possible so we can evaluate the difference in outcome. Um, you know, trying to, in many ways, uh, create what randomization does, you know, in, in itself. And so the challenge, though, is did we accurately, uh, you know, allocate them to the groups that do? And the biggest problem is did we actually get the right variables? Because if we have the wrong variables or we miss something, there's confounding. We will miss it, right? So because we're, we're trying to minimize what, you know, what, what randomization does and blinding does is selection bias. That's the kind of the gist of it anyway. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. So it, really a propensity matching design is simply just a variation on a match cohort design. Yeah. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, and I don't know if this is going to project because of my Zoom background, but the authors uh, uh, have a kernel density plot that show the variability before and after matching. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And you can see that how well the matching does. But, yeah, they did a great uh, job. Yeah. Right. So, but again, but again, uh, and which is great with what they know, but but that still doesn't, you know, doesn't, right. you know, doesn't get rid of the possibility we miss something important. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I've, I have uh, since I no longer practice at level one centers, I'm, I'm more at a, a level three center now where there's a lot of patients with metastatic disease. The clinical question that I've often been faced with is a patient with impending fracture. You know what the primary is. 
so often breast or lung. Uh, and do you radiate first and then put a nail in or do you radiate or let the systemic therapy and based on this study, I'm gonna be more inclined, I think to go ahead and, and, and put the nail in, which is you know for, for most surgeons to put a rod in an intact bone is fairly straightforward uh, procedure as long as you do it carefully and don't displace it with positioning. So I, that's why I, I thought this was a valuable contribution to our literature. Uh, I think there is a clinical application. And as far as uh, orthopedic oncology goes, this is a relatively common problem. I mean, there's only like 12 or 1400 new osteogenic sarcomas per year in the whole United States. So uh, for those uh, colleagues who practice in this world, this, this is a very, very common scenario and with the demographics of our aging population is likely to increase. So that was my choice. So what's yours, Mo? Yeah, so um, we just put out um, uh, an advanced clinical evidence report on a paper that came out from uh, the UK group, uh, you know, lots of great investigators, but Matt Costa uh, was the uh, uh, senior author in this particular study. It was the WHITE-5 trial, which was the uh, trial of cemented versus uncemented hemiarthroplasty for intracapsular hip fracture. And I put also um, just a note that at OrthoEvidence, we back in July of 2021 had put out an insight. And maybe what I, I'll, I'll do, it, I'll, I'll say to you is I'll, I'll read you a quote from Mike Dunbar, who was our guest uh, contributor at that point, Mark, before I jump into this particular trial's uh, results and get some take from you on it. But they're, you know, they're fairly compelling, but it's interesting. So back in 2021, we were talking about the prior evidence for, uh, for, for, you know, for cemented versus uncemented. Uh, arthroplasty in this case and the treatment of hip fractures and we again um, had had a guest contribution so he says the following this was his statement to us he said there are few areas in arthroplasty where evidence is so unequivocal favoring the use of cemented arthroplasty fixation for femoral neck fractures and he went on and on and on but he started off by saying this isn't a debate we need to be getting the message out and, but this was based on a lot of large observational data sets that were showing pretty big, you know, reductions in risk of not only mortality, but also, you know, a risk of secondary reoperations because of implant failure. So, you know, you'd get the, uh, you know, periprosthetic fracture associated with uncemented stems. So the paper comes along with this white five trial, which is just over, you know, 1200 patients or so. Uh, 600 roughly per arm. Um, and here's what they basically find. Uh, looking at um, four-month outcomes, so cemented versus uncemented hemiarthroplasty in intracapsular fractures, there was a modest benefit uh, looking at, at the Euroqual 5D, so you know, a health utility of a modest benefit, a 0.1 difference in a, you know, a, in a health utility score, but still it was a benefit favoring um, cemented arthroplasty. There was no difference in mortality. It was 24% uh, versus 28%. This was at one year, but still suggesting a 4% absolute lower risk, but they weren't powered at you know, 1,200 right. patients. And a significant reduction, um, in this case, about it looked like to me to be about a 75% reduction in the risk of having a, um, a periprosthetic fracture associated with the, uh, associated with the um, associate, uh, so risk reduction Right. Um, associated with cemented fixation. So you'd reduce the risk by 75%. So pretty compelling uh, clinical trial data that once again would support using cemented hemiarthroplasty um, in, that, in that category. I will tell you just briefly that the you know, prior evidence you know, uh, from a study of about 5,000 cases based on our July 2021 data set that we were presenting, 
In 5,000 cases, they did find a significant reduction in the risk of mortality. Uh, and, that, and that risk of mortality um, was in the you know 25% uh, range or so. So pretty significant um, in that perspective. It begs the question that if this trial had been a little bigger, they probably would have found a mortality benefit. And that mortality benefit mark is likely related to um, the secondary, you know, reoperations associated right. with fractures. Yeah. So I, I don't know, I guess from my perspective, um, certainly it's very consolidating evidence. Matt Costa feels they've answered the question. Um, you know, Mike Dunbar believed they, that they answered, that, you know, that we had the answer well before. And I wonder just when, when you look at this in total, is this enough now? Do we need more data here? Yeah, well, as, as you are no, perhaps better than any other orthopedic surgeon, these trials take a lot of energy. Uh, and although I wouldn't say categorically that we don't need any more evidence in this area, what I would say is that we should prioritize other questions of high importance before putting more energy into this question, because there's only a finite amount of energy that people involved in trials can do. Now, having said that, it, become clear, I think, to both of us that as the decades have gone by, it's become a bit more easy, easier to do these large simple trials because there's so many more centers that have had experience and are willing to participate. So it's a little easier, but I would say, no, it's not the end all be all, but we could probably set it aside until we've worked on some other more or equally important, rather, clinical questions. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Yeah, I, I certainly do. And, you know, I must say, in chatting with Matt Costa about this very issue, um, you know, it was, you know, it's been many, many years um, in, in the making of the study and certainly well-deserved, you know, kudos to the group, you know, for getting it published and getting the, you know, widely disseminated. But I did ask him, I said, you know, what's next? You know, uh, the question we ask, and we've been asking ourselves this around yeah. hip fractures, are implant trials, are surgical technique trials likely where we are to find big benefits in the outcome of patients? And, you know, his answer wasn't at all as surprising as I thought it may have been, because I think we've all been moving in this direction, Mark, in that, as you can imagine, uh, most of us are now thinking, you know, when you've been doing this for decades or so and doing research in this area, that the solution is going to come from interdisciplinary groups working together. The solution is likely gonna come from somewhere along the care pathway. Surgery may be, the actual surgical procedure may represent one small part of it, but probably not the most important part in the end, because a lot of the techniques that are being used right now, uh, and that, you know, in the hands of many of these surgeons are, are generally doing pretty well. We're seeing incremental differences here and there, as you and I have seen both, you know, when we look at total hip versus hemi being no difference at two years, you know, type of implant, fixation really being not that different in terms of the overall effects, some modest subgroup effects, probably it's going to be the perioperative care somewhere that's going to make that difference. Yeah, but right to that end, though, why don't you just uh, refresh the audience's memory on, on your findings of the HIP attack trial? Because we, we thought that faster to surgery would equal better outcomes. Right. So, you know, there was a HIP attack pilot that was done some years ago, PJ Devereaux uh, and Flavia Borges have been really, you know, sort of the the, the leads, both uh, you know, cardiologists and uh, perioperative uh, researchers. In this particular case, you know, um, hip attack was basically a study that randomized patients to rapid accelerated care. So from the time that they come to the hospital and emerge, within six hours they are to have that procedure done. So getting all the consults, getting cleared for surgery, and then having the procedure. That was the target goal. And in hip attack, we were able to achieve a median um, 
you know, operative time to surgery in the treatment group and the accelerated group at six hours. And then the median time in the control group, which was, you know, usual care was about 24 hours. So there still was quite a bit of separation. We didn't find a signal for mortality in the overall trial. This was published in the Lancet. However, what was particularly important was there was, you know, quicker, quicker uh, time to getting up. Uh, there was less uh, issues with confusion. Um, there was less issues with overall infection, you know, uh, UTIs and things like that, that suggested that, you know, there's probably a signal here. And most importantly, and patients who came in with elevated uh, troponins, that particular group that normally would have said, okay, let's wait and see, let's, you know, medically optimize. When that group was rapidly treated, there appeared to be a mortality benefit in the subgroup. Knowing, you know, PJ uh, and Flavia being as rigorous as they are, they weren't going to trust that subgroup effect. And so there is a second HIPAA-TAC true trial right now funded that is uh, beginning and you know, rolling out uh, around the world, which will be specifically targeting that particular population and looking at the mortality potential benefit for that. If it works, Mark, it is really a transformational trial. Yeah, but it, yeah, I think we're all in agreement that uh, it's it's not it's not a certain kind of prosthesis or a certain kind of cement or a certain kind of surgical approach. It's uh, perioperative care and uh, and and team approach uh, to managing these uh, rather ill patients. So yeah. Well, so uh, two really strong suggestions that have huge clinical applications with two very different research designs, and I think uh, both have great value. Uh, and uh, I, I think these types of uh, uh, events here in Ortho Joe, where we talk about what's coming to our attention, I think is is extreme is extremely valuable to, to to come back to our roots as 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 journal editors. Uh, Absolutely. See what's catching our fancy. So, Absolutely. And 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 I do get a chance to talk with you, which is kind of fun, by the way. Just you know, <laughs> just just putting it out there. It's kind of nice to chat with you. Yeah. Well, it's always always a pleasure, Mo. And <laughs> you make me uh, feel like like such a commoner with no Perrier. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, Perrier in an Ortho Joe cup, though. <laughs> Come on now, <laughs> Perrier in an Ortho Joe cup. Yeah. Next <laughs> next time, I expect a wedge of lime. So. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Have a great day, and it's always great to chat with you, uh, and onward. Onward. Yeah.